Our scripture reading today is from Colossians 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Debbie, for reading that passage, these opening verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. If we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey, and I'm the pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church Cool Springs. Welcome. It's good to have you here this morning. This, this letter... And that's what it is. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae is a correspondence that has a very specific focus to what was happening in the life of the church at the time and also at the same time a broader focus, which is why it is in the canon of Scripture and ours to read and study as well. And what I want to talk about this morning is the joy of having Christ in common with one another. That there's something, and I talk about this from time to time, but I want to go into it a little bit more, that when Christians meet each other, there's um, uh, there's, there's a bond and there's a shared uh, experience and ethic and perspective uh, that we can presume about one another. Uh, Has anybody in this room, this is a raise your hand sort of situation, Raise your hand if you have summited a 14er. Okay. The experience that we just, what's that? In a car. In a car. No. 
I don't even know what to do with you sometimes. <laughs> so the experience we just had is I said summited a 14er, and some of you who have summited 14ers knew exactly what I was talking about. Hand went up. Some of you said, what's that? What do you mean summited a 14er? What is a 14? A 14er is a mountain peak that is 14,000 feet tall or higher. Almost all of them in America are in one state, that state being Colorado. Not everybody said Colorado just now. <laughs> For those who have summited 14ers, we, I've done 10 of them. There, we, we, we have a shared experience where I can describe what it's like and you'll nod in agreement. There's a trailhead where you park and it's usually overflowing with cars. There's an initial stretch that is kind of flat. Usually you're kind of right below or near tree line. It's green. Then you get into the willows and that's this stretch where you're just kind of working your way through shrubbery. And then you, the incline starts a little bit more. You get above tree line. It's rocky. There are people out there. And then the last push to the summit is usually where the trail goes away and you're just kind of climbing and scampering over boulders to get to the top of a summit. Did I, 14 or people, did I do a pretty good job of describing what most of them are like? That's kind of the experience that you have. Christianity is similar, that when we, when, when somebody introduces themselves to me as a follower of Jesus Christ, there are things that I understand to be true, that must be true about them because of that shared faith. And so I want to get into that uh, this morning. We're going to talk about this letter to Colossians. It's this soaring meditation on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ over all things. And it's a letter that makes much of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier in the service, it was this letter where I first understood the gospel, where the Lord used several verses in this, in this book to make clear to me uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, what grace is. Uh, now, not perfectly clear. I'm learning all the time about that, but it was where a light went on. This is a letter where we learn about Christ's power, his power over evil, and how that power is ours when we are united in him. And it's a letter that teaches us the work of Christ is not just some new plan that God came up with. That the, it, it, it tells us the Old Testament was not God's first attempt at something and it didn't go well. And so the New Testament is his correction of that plan. No, what this does is it says Christ is the one who fulfills the covenant perfectly. This was the plan all along that Christ himself would be the one who would keep the law of God for us. And so I'm excited as we study it because we're going to get into this here. I, I want to highlight the personal nature of this letter. When you read a New Testament epistle, like Colossians, like Romans, like Hebrews, we're reading theology. There's a lot of theology in this. But we're also reading correspondence. We're re reading a letter where there is a writer writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and there's an intended original audience, usually a church or a group of churches in a particular region. And when we think about what it means to be a Christian, we have to be about more than just the mere accumulation of theological concepts. Uh, because we're more than that. We're connected to one another. We're a body. We're brought into community over which Christ is the head. And so we're going to keep that in front of us as we proceed 
through this, this letter. Now, there's a joy in having Christ in common with one another. And the older I get, the deeper that joy goes. It's the joy of being part of the body of Christ where the Lord, in his kindness and in his wisdom and in his unpredictability, supplies your friends for you. People that you see on a weekly basis. You see maybe more regularly than you see your own parents. Some of whom, you, you, on first meeting, you, you delight to know that they exist and you're excited to explore friendships. Others, you think, there's no way we would have been friends in high school, right? We have that kind of range in the body of Christ, and it's part of the Lord's goodness to us that we do this. In these opening verses that Debbie just read for us, one of the things that's really clear is Paul is writing with a lot of affection. He loves these people that he's writing to. He loves this church. And he's talking to them, even though there's no way he could possibly know everybody there. He's talking to them in a, in a common tongue. There's this kind of shared commonality, and that commonality is Christ, and how that relationship with Jesus speaks into and shapes and informs everything else about them. So, so if, you, if I meet you for the first time, and I discover that you're a Christian, there are things that I will assume to be true about you. And I want to list some of them. These are, just, these are things, if you, if you tell me that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, much like if somebody tells me they've summited a 14er, there are things about your life experience, about your perspective, that I will just assume are the case for you. So there are these. First, I will assume that at some point in your life, you submitted yourself, no, that you admitted, sorry, I misspoke. I will assume that at some point in your life, you admitted to yourself and to God that you are a sinner and that you're a sinner who deserves the wage of sin, which is death. And with this, I will assume that the odds are really good that somewhere in your journey, to reach a point where you have admitted to yourself and to God that you are a sinner, I will assume that at some point you've suffered. That maybe you've suffered some sort of affliction, maybe you've suffered some kind of setback or disappointment, you've come to the end of yourself, maybe you've had a tragedy. Something has happened in your life that brought you to your knees in a posture of need. I'll assume that that that's likely. The second thing I'll assume is I will assume that you understand and believe that Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect righteousness in your place. That part of what you mean when you say that you're a Christian is that you understand and believe that Christ lived a life of perfect righteousness in your place. I will understand, I will assume that you believe that Christ died in the place of sinners, that he died in your place, that he paid the wage of sin for you, and that that's what you believe. I will assume that you believe that Christ defeated the power of death by rising from the grave, and that by believing in him, you too believe that you will share in his life forever, that death will not be the end of the story for you. 
Now that's a significant thing to believe. When I meet somebody and they tell me a Christ, they're a Christian, I'm assuming that you're a person who believes that death is not the end of the story. That's a big thing to believe, right? I will assume, here's another one, I will assume that by professing faith in Christ, you are saying that you endeavor to live in a way that honors the commands of Christ. That you take stock of how and where you fall short. That you pursue righteousness in a posture of repentance. And I will also assume that you assume that about me. That there's this desire to obey the commands of Christ. To believe any of this, these assumptions, requires a healthy measure of humility. I will assume that you're a person who values humility. And in valuing humility will be this upfront admission that you are on your own, no better off than anybody else because you need Jesus. And then the last thing I will assume, because you may be sitting there thinking, oh gosh, if that's your measure by which you determine, you know, by, by which you think, I, I'll say this, I, I will assume that all of those beliefs that you hold, um, you hold in an aspirational way. That you'll say, I believe these things, but help my unbelief, I'm terrible at, at living these things out. And I'll say, me too. But they're aspirational, right? That nobody is perfect and they're following Jesus, and yet we would say, but these are the fundamentals of what it means to profess faith in Jesus. Now, I don't think for a second that everyone who claims Christianity as their faith embraces all of these things. I'm not, I'm not a fool. I know that that's not the case. I know that people identify themselves as Christians for cultural reasons. I know that people identify themselves as Christians to use a term to identify how they were raised. If somebody identifies themselves by their denomination, I wonder, you know, if somebody says, I'm Wesleyan or I'm Methodist, I wonder. And it's not a knock on either of those because even if somebody says, oh, I'm a Presbyterian, I wonder, like, is that a cultural thing? Is that a, uh, just kind of you were raised in that church and so that's how you sort of view yourself? But what Colossians is doing here is it's showing us that a nominal affiliation with Christianity in your past doesn't make you a Christian. Only faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ makes you a Christian. The true Christian, there's an object to your faith, and the object to your faith is Christ himself. But when that faith is there, when that faith is really there, what becomes of a community of faith? Well, that's what I want us to look at as we unpack this text. What becomes of a community of faith when these are the things that we share with one another? For Paul, this, I'm t taking this from verses 3 through 5. That's what I'm focused on right now. For Paul, the genuine faith the people in Colossae have is to him a cause for joy. He delights in it. He rejoices in it. Because it means that he knows that they want to love one another well. 
It's a love that they can give easily because of the hope they have in the life to come. If we believe that we can only obtain comfort and only obtain peace by just outperforming everybody else, by being the best, by having some measure of our worth that puts us more valuable, more worthy than our neighbor, then we will go through life treating people as opponents, as people we're in constant competition with. And that makes it hard to love. But if you believe that your worth and your security rest in what Christ has done for you and in what Christ has done for the world, then you will give your love to others freely and you'll have great compassion on them. When they're broken, when they're hurting, you'll have that compassion because you know that since the foundation of the world, the truth has always been that our worth rests in being image bearers of God. And that we're made in the image of God for the purpose of knowing him and loving him and enjoying him and delighting in him. And that Christ has made the way for us to, be, to flourish in this. This is the joy of having Christ in common, is, is we have this kind of hope for ourselves and for one another, and we know that we belong to one another forever. Paul follows his prayer of thanksgiving in the opening verses um, with a prayer about their conduct as followers of Jesus Christ. And this gets back to the idea that when we profess our faith, there are certain things that we should be able to expect of one another in terms of a shared Christian ethic, right? And it makes so much sense when you read these letters, these epistles to the church, that part of what they do is they explain what it means for Christians to live Christ-exalting God-honoring lives in community with one another because this was new. This was new. And so Colossians does this. But one of the things that we see is it's not an us versus them code of superiority or contempt for non-Christians. Instead, what it is, it's an ethic to endeavor to walk in obedience to Jesus and to love him. And it's serious business to Paul. He says it like this. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. That when I meet Christians and when I reveal that I'm a Christian, there is this shared understanding that we do desire to walk in a way that is honoring to Christ. What does that code look like? What does that Christian code of conduct or ethic look like? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the grace that we've been shown? Well, one of the things that Paul does here in this letter to kind of drill down into that is he doesn't start with a list of do's and don'ts, but he starts more with concepts. And there are three that I draw from this passage, three qualities from this text that represent 
the shared code, the common ethic that Christians have with one another that Paul is laying out for us. And the first one is that our walk, what does it mean to have a walk worthy of the mercy and grace of Christ? The first is that it's a knowledgeable walk. That's what he says. He says in verse 10, it's one that is bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The follower of Jesus Christ seeks to know the Lord better, just as a husband or a wife seeks to know their spouse better, that this is, or a parent seeks to know their children better. The follower of Christ seeks to know the Lord better. This, this is why two of our primary values for discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church, which are out there on those boards in the lobby, are that we would gather for corporate worship every Sunday and that we would spend time with Jesus every day. This is not an attempt at legalism. It's not just creating boxes for us to check, but what it is, it's about knowing the one in whom we place our faith, that we would desire to know him better, availing ourselves of the means that he has given for that, his word. The knowledge of the Lord is the path to bearing fruit. We learn to follow. We learn to obey, that we would walk a knowledgeable walk. The second manner in which to walk worthy of the grace of God is an enduring walk. I have to pause and just say, what I just said grammatically would be next to impossible to diagram in sentence form. I'll have to go back and listen to the tape. I'll attempt it. But boy, that was weird. All right. It's an enduring walk. That's what I'm trying to say. It's an enduring walk. It's one that is, here's what he says in verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Faith in Christ is not a plaything. Faith in Christ is not something we're playing around with. It's not something to claim in order to be accepted in certain circles. It is a path of devotion, and it is a devotion to a path. When I meet somebody who professes faith in Jesus, I presume that they want that faith to endure to the end. I presume that when you tell me you're a Christian, you're not saying, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. Um, I don't know if I will be or will want to be a year from now. I will assume, because of these other things that I assume about the supremacy of Christ and your need for him, that there is a desire for that faith to endure. And the endurance Paul talks about here is akin to being able to hold your position in battle. That's kind of the, the, the image in the, in the original language. That we suffer in this world and we face trials at every turn, but our feet are planted by the help and the grace of God. For many of you, well, I don't know if this is true of many of you, you tell me if this is true of you. Maybe you're a person who really has no sense of urgency to believe at all. Just, you, don't, you don't get why it even matters. You haven't really suffered much yet. You haven't had uh, an experience in your life that has brought you to the end of yourself. And so, frankly, you just you don't see the point in a spiritual compass. And so maybe for you, 
kind of toying around with faith is just that. It's kind of a curiosity. It's, it's a plaything. It's a thought experiment. And it really makes little difference in your daily life. Or maybe you even just see it as just kind of an obstacle to doing what I want to do. Others of you, though, you've suffered. You've believed at some point that you have come to the end of yourself. And you have known on a visceral level that apart from outside help, you're, you're hopeless. And you've been confronted with your own sin in such a way that instead of choosing a defensive posture of self-righteousness when confronted with it, you've, you've seen your own need to be rescued from the darkness inside your own heart. And what Paul's prayer here is for us to walk in the power of the Spirit in such a way that we simultaneously recognize our desperate need for the preserving grace of Christ, and we also, at the same time, possess a joyful confidence in the Holy Spirit's power to keep us, that those two things are happening simultaneously, a recognition of our need and a joyful confidence in Christ meeting that need. When this is how we walk, we will see all of our days, our own and the days of our brothers and sisters in Christ, as a walk toward something, a walk toward our eternal hope and our eternal home. So it's an enduring walk. And third and finally, it's a grateful walk. Christ's work in our lives gives us reason to, as Paul says in verses 12 to 14, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those verses right there say things that should cause us to weep at the beauty and the value of what's being said. If you've ever been in line as an heir to an inheritance, you know, with a family member or something like that, perhaps you've had the experience of letting your mind kind of dream about what it could be when you finally receive that inheritance. Maybe, let's just put a number on it, maybe someday down the line you anticipate, I might inherit $300,000. That's not change your life move to the Bahamas money, but it's maybe get rid of all your debt, get ahead on some things, put a little in savings kind of money, and you start to just think, man, the qualitative difference that I would experience in my life if I had that, I, I just, it's fun to think about. This passage just said that we share in the inheritance of the saints of light and that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved sons in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. $300,000, heir to the kingdom of God, 
where all of our sin is forgiven for all eternity. When people talk about Christian conduct, it can be easy to get caught up in the particular do's and don'ts like dancing and alcohol and political commitments, appearances, moral boundaries. Those things have value, they're important, but they're not the starting point of Christian conduct. The starting point of Christian conduct is I'm an heir to the kingdom of God forever. My worth is wrapped up in the identity that is mine because of Christ. I'm made in the image of God. When you look at these things in scripture in this passage, what Paul is emphasizing at the start of the letter that we're going to dig deeper into as we get into the particulars of righteousness and sinful living which come up in this passage is that there are three initial codes to embrace as Christians a desire for the knowledge of God, a spirit-empowered endurance in following him, and gratitude. What does this tell us? It tells us that these are all about staying near to him. The idea is that our conduct will never be the reason that God draws near to us, but will be a response to the glorious truth that he has drawn near to us. And so my prayer is that we would embrace these truths together as a church and learn to walk in Christ as a community who can reasonably expect that our postures toward one another will be marked by these things. Love, a desire to know one another, a desire to persevere in our relationships with one another, all in a spirit of gratitude to the Lord for what he has given. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the opening verses of this letter. I thank you for the way that you use this letter in my own life to show yourself to me. And I also thank you, Lord, knowing that for each person in this room who makes the same profession of faith as a follower of Jesus, there's something in their life. There's some event or maybe, maybe there's not even an event because they just grew up believing in you and that never changed, but that you have shown yourself faithful. And Lord, we recognize that we see through a glass very dimly and that we will encounter things in life that will cause us to um, cause us to pause because they will reveal that you're not who we thought you were. And Lord, in those moments where we may experience a crisis of encountering you in such a way that makes us realize that we, we thought we've been thinking of you wrongly, that you would give us a desire for deeper knowledge of you, um, that, that we wouldn't feel betrayed because of our lack of understanding, but that we would feel helped by your spirit, by the clarity that we receive in how you reveal yourself to us over time. Knit this church together. Continue to knit this church together. Make us to be a people who are grateful for one another, who keep short accounts with one another, who forgive one another, who apologize to one another. And uh, Lord, we're just thankful for your kindness to us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.